It's Friday. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on today's show, we'll have a report from the Gulf States newsroom about contract disputes between hospitals and insurers, and one case in which a dispute with with Mississippi's largest insurer uh, affected affordable health care access at Mississippi's largest hospital. Also, this Veterans Day, we'll hear from the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans about the history of Jewish service members from the South serving their nation. It's all just ahead. But first, earlier this week, a federal judge ruled that the conditions at a state prison in Homer, a town in Claiborne Parish in northern Louisiana, violate the constitutional rights of prisoners. Western District of Louisiana Judge Elizabeth Foote found that prisoners at David Wade Correctional Center were housed in inhumane conditions and that the prison failed to provide adequate medical care. To discuss the case, the accusations against the prison, and how it has affected prisoners, we have Nick Crastel, who covers criminal justice for The Lens. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thanks so much for having me. And we also have with us Melanie Bray, Assistant Legal Director at Disability Rights Louisiana. Welcome to Louisiana Considered, Melanie. Thanks for having me. First of all, what kind of allegations are being made against the prison? Uh, Sure. Uh, There are many. (laughs) Primarily, they focus on uh, the failure to provide adequate mental health care um, to individuals that are housed on um, what is coined as the South Compound. Uh, The South Compound tends to house individuals in extended lockdown or solitary confinement conditions, which uh, means that they're housed for 23, uh, up to 23 hours a day in uh, cells. Um, So our, our the allegations include, you know, the failure to provide mental health care to these men and also the conditions of confinement in, where they're housed, which includes um, brutality by uh, prison staff, um, unconstitutional conditions of care, um, just general housing conditions um, that may contribute to or worsen or create mental illness. And what is it about these conditions, the situation that makes it unconstitutional? The individuals that are housed back there in the solitary conditions that are there for tw- up to 23 hours a day, they don't have a clear path for how to get out. In their minds, they're held indefinitely. Uh, many of them believe that if they go without a, a rule violation or a write-up for 90 days, that'll make them eligible to be released from that housing unit into general population. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Also, there's uh, a lot of policies that are um, in, that the judge found are in violation of the Constitution, such as they have uh, what's called a strip cell policy, um, where they leave individuals in a cell with no blankets and no bedding and no clothing, uh, nothing but a paper gown for up to 30 days at a time, um, often for just a simple write-up or uh, rule violation. Now, Nick, you've been covering this. Can you tell me how long this has been going on? Melanie and Disability Rights filed the lawsuit in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Um, But, you know, in the Louisiana prison system, solitary confinement has been used widely for decades. And it's really been something that in recent years, DOC has been really attempting to rein in, or at least saying that they're attempting to rein it in. So one interesting thing about this lawsuit is that in many ways, DOC has been kind of touting these efforts. And then on the other hand, they are challenging this lawsuit where, you know, prisoners are being being held in these conditions and basically arguing that restrictive housing and solitary confinement doesn't cause harm to prisoners. 
and, and this is something the judge pointed out in her decision. She said, look, you know that this, this is causing harm. You've said it, you've admitted it, and you're rightfully taking these efforts to reduce it. But on the other hand, when we, you come into court, you're arguing that there's no problem. With it. What have been the, the consequences for the prisoners when we're talking about the lack of provision of mental health care? It is heard of that there are suicides in prison. Uh, what have been the, the consequences for them? There has been a, a great deal of decompensation and, and deterioration um, for the men that have been housed at David Wade. Um, some of it has been repairable by transferring them into a facility that offers that acute care and that higher level of you know, psychiatric care that they need. Um, some individuals, unfortunately, have deteriorated to a point that they are beyond a point that they can recover um, and have, have lost uh, the ability to communicate in some instances, um, have lost all ability to care for themselves. And there's at least one individual who's now inpatient hospital for possibly the rest of his life um, due to his inability to provide care for himself. Um, there have been countless, countless graphic suicide attempts um, that have taken place um, over the course of the time that um, we've been looking at the conditions there. We're speaking with Melanie Bray, Assistant Legal Director at Disability Rights Louisiana, and Nick Crastel, who covers criminal justice for the Lens NOLA. We're speaking about the David Wade Correctional Center. I understand the prison has been used as a disciplinary camp for prisoners who break the rules at other state prisons. Does that point to David Wade being a facility which has operations more aligned with punitive management of prisoners rather than handling special cases of mental health? David Wade is, um, they certainly treat individuals as though they are all there to be extra punished, but I, I don't, I disagree with the characterization that all of the men that are transferred there need to be in some kind of special disciplinary housing area. Um, even over the course of this lawsuit of, of the men that we've met with and dealt with and, and formed, um, you know, working relationships with that have ended up being transferred out of David Wade and into another prison have ended up doing very well. Several of them have gone to other prisons and become honors trustees or end up, you know, getting jobs within the prison, helping prisoners, other prisoners uh, with, you know, different programs. I was just going to say, it's, it's also worth noting that many of the prisoners who are being held in restrictive housing conditions by the prison's own standards have already served their, you know, disciplinary infraction times. And, you know, when I really started hearing about the conditions at David Wade was last summer, several prisoners did a hunger strike. And, and that was over both the conditions of confinement they were being held in, but also because they, you know, they said, we got a 90 day disciplinary write up and we've been here for months or years, you know, beyond that. And Nick, how has the Department of Corrections responded in this case so far? What happens next for the prison inmates? That's a good question. Um, the department has not given uh, a response to my inquiries, at least regarding the ruling. But in January, there is going to be a, a second uh, part of this trial, and that's, that'll be the remedy phase. And that's when um, the parties will kind of present evidence both with regards to whether or not this is still taking place, whether or not the conditions have improved at all since, uh, you know, since since the last phase of the trial and since the discovery deadline of, um, yeah, since March of 2020, 
And Melanie will likely present a case for what needs to still be done and what sort of actions the court needs to take to, to change the conditions there and to make sure that, that the prisoners are getting adequate mental health care. Um, and I think that could come in, in a range of uh, forms. And I think it's important to point out that we, we didn't file this case. This isn't a case for damages. We didn't file this case to seek money on anyone's behalf. We filed this case for declaratory and injunctive relief to you know, get the declaration that what they're doing is unconstitutional, and then the injunctive relief to change it and fix it and make it humane and treat people like human beings should be treated. So that's really the focus of what we're doing in January. And Nick, what's been surprising to you as you've been reporting this story for The Lens? Well, the conditions being described in the lawsuit and by by prisoners who have testified testified at trial and uh, you know have have reached out to me are just are really disturbing. Um, and I think that 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 has been the most shocking thing. Another thing is the the prison, despite there being all these instances of, of attempted suicides of of self harm, there's a single psychiatrist. Uh, who works just twice a month at the prison, who visits it, um, is contracted for just 18 hours a month, and that includes travel time to and from. And so I think that was quite shocking to me, the the kind of lack of infrastructure there to handle these, in, in some cases, very severe mental health crises, um, was quite shocking. And the prisoners who testified at trial really spoke to this. They said, you know, we're treated pretty strictly with medication. There's not an opportunity for us to have counseling, to have other forms of interaction that that might be productive. Nick Krastel covers criminal justice for The Lens, and Melanie Bray is assistant legal director at Disability Rights Louisiana. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. This is Louisiana Considered from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. It's been eight months since Mississippi's largest hospital and the state's biggest insurer parted ways, leaving many patients without access to affordable health care for specialized and critical needs. As the Gulf State's newsroom's Shalina Chatlani reports, contract disputes between hospitals and insurers are common, but for this one, there's still no solution in sight. When Kylie Silverman has trouble with her hearing aid, she usually goes to the doctor right away. She's 17 and fully deaf in her left ear. But right now, she can't see her audiologist. That's because her insurance is no longer accepted where her doctor works. It's difficult to communicate at home because, you know, I come from a hearing family where nobody knows sign. So I can't hear. It just is frustrating because, you know, you can't communicate. Silverman, her siblings, and her parents all struggle with a lot of medical issues. For years, they've seen specialists at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, or UMMC, on Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance. But in April, UMMC's contract with the insurer expired. Since then, the hospital has been out of network, and Silverman's family could be on the hook for massive medical bills. Where I live is a small place. You have limit, you have very limited number of options for doctors. Silverman is one of thousands of patients caught in the middle of a showdown between two big players. 
UMMC is Mississippi's only level one trauma center and children's hospital, so it wants a lot more money from Blue Cross for its services. Blue Cross Blue Shield is the largest commercial insurer in the state and doesn't think the hospital should get a significant raise. Policyholders are essentially stuck in limbo with insurance they can't use at the hospital. Since UMMC dropped the insurer before the open enrollment period, many patients weren't able to switch plans. Health economist Amanda Stark said that was no accident. Well, the hospital's negotiating leverage comes from the fact that they're essentially a monopoly. What might the enrollees do if they don't have access to that monopoly hospital in their network? Well, they're going to switch insurance plans, and that puts pressure on Blue Cross Blue Shield. Blue Cross Blue Shield has some leverage here, too. Since they are the state's largest insurer, UMMC stands to lose a big patient base. These types of disputes happen all the time and across the country, when hospitals and insurers battle on who is paying for what and how much. But, Stark says, what's rare about this case is that it's gone on for so long and impacted so many people. Patients are actually being harmed. Normally, we don't let it get to the point where any patients are being harmed. I'm mad at both of them. Let's just make that clear. Not happy with either one of them. Mississippi Insurance Commissioner Mike Cheney is the guy who handles consumer issues with insurance companies. He says his department has begged both parties to move quickly. This should have never happened. You put the lives of thousands of Mississippians on the line simply because of money. He says he helped them find a mediator back in July. But in October, the official mediation process was terminated, although Cheney says both parties are mediating informally. The Gulf States newsroom obtained emails to the insurance department from patients who say they were turned away for their critical care or suggested massive upfront fees. That makes Cheney angry because UMMC gets some money from the state. You know, it should be a moral and ethical obligation of the University of Medical Center not to tell people we're not going to treat you, we don't care if you die, that's wrong. And he thinks Blue Cross Blue Shield could be in trouble, too, because their customers are paying them for specialty services that they can't actually get right now. The hospital and the insurer both refuse to do interviews. UMMC emailed a statement saying they've been telling patients about other options. Blue Cross says it's working to find the best solution for its policyholders. Patients like Silverman continue to struggle. Her mother, Jessica Slade, says this challenge on top of recent abortion bans and hospital closures is making her question whether to stay in Mississippi at all. Okay, so you're in the car? And some of her friends have already left. Yep, we're in the car on our trip, moving out of Mississippi. We're free. We're medical refugees. That's Natasha Zinda. Her son likely has autism and was working with doctors at UMMC on his diagnosis. But since the contract dispute began, she hasn't been able to go. So she moved to a town just outside of Chicago. And I know that we're not probably the first people that are leaving because of this, and we won't be the last. And Slade has decided she's going to follow her friend out of the state. It's not fair. It's a common thing in Mississippi healthcare that it's not about us. It's not about the patients. And really, this... The contract issue is just par for the course. Slade hopes this move will take her to a place where her family's health care needs are a priority and that her children aren't caught in the middle of two groups simply fighting over money. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chatlani. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. 
It says Louisiana considered. Today, November 11th, is Veterans Day, a time to honor all those who have served our country. And the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans is paying a special tribute to Southern Jewish servicemen and women, largely thanks to the contributions of Risa Morris. Morris, a native of Shreveport and retired Air Force colonel, joins us now for more on the collection and to shine a light on this unique chapter of military history. She spoke with our managing producer, Alana Schreiber. Risa, to start, tell us a little bit about this collection. For anyone who goes to see the exhibit, what might they find inside? So this is a collection from my father, from mostly from his first enlistment in the 1930s. It's his picture, it's letters that he wrote to his family. It's a picture book of one of the battles that he was in in Shanghai during the uh, Sino-Japanese War uh, and his medals. He was also in the World War II, although I don't have many items from that era. I know your father, Edward Morris, is really at the center of this exhibit. So can you tell us a little bit more about his life, his time in the service, and his Jewish identity? He's from Atlanta, Georgia. So my dad I joined right out of, the, uh, out of high school. He enlisted, served four years, I think between 35 and 39 or 36 and 40. And uh, he then, when World War II happened, he re-upped again and served another four years. So he did a total of eight years. He's unusual. He served in both the Pacific and the Atlantic in World War II. Most people served one or the other, but he actually did both. So he was in pretty much every major battle there was in the Pacific and uh, naval battle in, in uh, the Atlantic as well. And I know that my father um, suffered anti-Semitism because when I was originally going to join the military, I was planning to join the Navy. And when I switched to the Air Force, he was glad because he suffered a lot of anti-Semitism. He, but he identified very strongly as Jewish. I know that it was very important to him, even though he's not religious, he's definitely an identified as Jewish. World War II was the first time for a lot of people who had never met Jews before, where all of a sudden they're serving alongside them. People from entirely different American backgrounds were coming together to serve the country. What do you think that that did for all of these people, this, this exposure to people from different cultural backgrounds and communities? Well, they certainly learned a lot. I mean, they were all fighting for the same cause to save the U.S., and that brought a bond together. Um, and so a lot of them really expanded their horizons, and they got to know people on a personal level as opposed to the, the level that, that you hear about, you know, the stereotypical level. Some people, though, never learned. Some people, there were issues with they went back as ignorant as they started. But I think that the majority of the people, because of the experience, they had to share experience. You know, in war, you have that common goal to survive, to, to, to win, to see your family when you get home, and to help your fellow servicemen. And I think that was the bond he had. And the fact that he was Jewish helped people understand that we are American too. We're, we're just like, like them, as it were. We are speaking with veteran Risa Morris, whose collection of artifacts is currently featured at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience. You know, Risa, my grandfather was also a Jewish World War II veteran. He came from New York, but in talking about his time in the service, one thing that always struck me was that while he was in basic training in Fort Worth, the small Jewish community there just kind of found him and did everything they could to make him stay. You know, they introduced him to the most eligible Jewish women and they'd give him all these free dinners. And I don't think that experience was unique to him. So what do we know about how Jewish servicemen 
impacted or were perhaps impacted by these smaller communities that they interacted with while they were training or on leave? It's, it's very important. I mean, I experienced myself, I was in a lot of small towns. So, you know, you want to connect with your own people. You want to make them feel welcome. You want them to know that you're not alone. You're in this big service. There's not many Jews that are like you, near you. There's only maybe one or two in your unit, if you're lucky. And so the Jewish community coming out to help you out is just, it's family. You're away from your home. You're away from family. So they're your, they're your pseudo family. And so it's very important going and having matzo ball soup is is a great thing and so to have that in another small community it just fills your heart i also want to talk a little bit about some of the other items in the collection you have some artifacts from dallas and fort worth so what are those and what do they reveal so that's actually from my mother's side of the house that's my grandmother she was raised in fort worth texas and so i donated her confirmation picture from 1916. Uh, her father was a bartender uh, in Fort Worth. So there are pictures from the 1800s, 1880s, her family that she was growing up. So it shows another side of Judaism in Fort Worth, as my father, as my grandmother used to say, she lived in Fort Worth before it was a part of Dallas. So it just shows another era of Judaism in this country at a very, very young age. Sounds like there's a pretty good chance that maybe my grandfather met your grandmother in Fort Worth. <laughs> may, may have been. Well, Risa, you served in the Air Force. You saw combat in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In an article, you once wrote, military Jews find religion where they can. What do you mean by that? How did your religious identity guide you during your time in the service? Uh, when I was in Iraq on my base, there were only five of us. And only myself and the chaplain knew who all the five Jews were because it was also dangerous. Once I managed to get us all together very quietly so we could talk and, and, and commiserate. Uh, in Afghanistan, there was a bigger community. I was on the headquarters base. We had the embassy and then we had another American base. And most Fridays, we managed to have services. We had Rosh Hashanah, we had Passover, we had Hanukkah. And so you find it where you can to identify. It's, it's very easy for the Protestants and the Catholics and such to go to services. But for us, it was an extra special effort. Something that both you and your father chose to do was to identify as Jewish on your dog tags. We should mention that the reason soldiers often put their religion on their dog tag is so if they're killed in combat, whoever finds them knows what should be done with their body according to religious traditions. But this was really dangerous. In World War II, often if you had Jewish on your dog tag, that meant that you were more likely to be killed if you were captured or they were more likely to mistreat your bodies. So why did both you and your father decide that, despite the risks, you were going to identify as Jewish proudly while in the service? So both my father and I decided to identify as Jewish. Uh, I still have his dog tags. I did not donate those. And it has the J on it. Uh, when I was in Iraq, I was advised not to put Jewish on my dog tags because if I was captured, I would have absolutely been killed. Uh, I chose to, to keep Jewish on my dog tags. It's a conscious decision to put Jewish on your dog tags in areas where they will kill you just because you're Jewish. So in World War II, um, in Europe, if you were captured by the Germans uh, and you were Jewish, you were immediately sent to the concentration camps. You were not sent to the prisoner or war camps. And so you were killed. So my dad, it was very important, I think, to him to know that Jews were fighting for this country and trying to save our people and, and save our country. And he wanted to know that the Jews were very much a part of that war. Uh, we were 
right there side by side uh, with everyone else. This has been United States retired Air Force Colonel Risa Morris. You can check out the exhibit From Atlanta to Shanghai in the U.S. Navy at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans. Risa, thank you so much for being here and thank you for your service. Thank you. And that's been Louisiana Considered on a Friday. I'm Adam Voss. Have a good weekend. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouse's.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.